Um, my name is Jeff and I'm teaching this morning and uh, we're jumping back in with Genesis as you just got the hint. Uh, Genesis chapter 16. And um, the good news is Genesis chapter 16 is the shortest chapter of Genesis. The bad news is that will have no effect on the length of the sermon whatsoever. Um, the, the thing that about this chapter is there is so much humanity packed in just a few verses. In fact, what we're going to do is we're almost going to skip the first six verses. You had them read to you. You know the premise of the story. And we're going to spend the bulk of the time on the later verses. But I want to just put that capture of, of the thoughts of what happens in those first six verses, what happens in the whole chapter, into a little bit of context for you, um, very briefly, about humanity in general. And uh, this whole concept, we know that there has been uh, a generation promised to Abram and Sarai, and so they're waiting. And as we add to this list, we know that waiting is on this list, but so is doubting, so is blaming, so is infertility, so is slavery, adultery, contempt, anger, abandonment, promises, promises, the birth of a nation. Oh, and also in this story, we have the first theophany or the appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, where it shows up when it says the angel of the Lord, he makes an appearance here. All of that is happening in this small chapter. There's a lot going on and I'm just given the high level brush of it. It's not bad for one of the shortest chapters to have so much of the kind of the drama of humanity played out. And you really get three people and a baby um, that are living this out. In fact, Ishmael has a very minor role in this entire story. It's just three people and God. And what happens when those all kind of shake and stir what comes out of that? But in that, we have in the first six verses, this concept that if humanity is left to itself, this is what we get. That we really get some really poor choices. We get some bad decisions on the part of humanity. And that shows up in the first six verses. That you get Sarai, who as she's waiting for this to happen, doesn't think it's going to happen. So she comes up with this idea that what if I give my slave to sleep with my husband? Then I could take that baby as my own and then that will make everything right. She's got a bad choice. Abram then says yes to that idea and gets involved in that. That scenario. And then Hagar, after she finds out that she's conceived, she starts having contempt for her mistress and starts acting badly about that. So what we have in those first six verses is bad choice after bad choice after bad choice with everybody that's involved. And it turns out badly. But this is why we're going to skip those verses is because in verse seven, Everything pivots into a brand new direction. It all changes in verse 7. So look with me at verse 7 to see this pivot point, And uh, you'll see why I think this is where we need to start. Is in verse 7 it says, The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. 
this concept of everything that man has done, how humanity in general makes a mess of itself, that at that point in time, God intervenes, that Christ shows up. And at that point, this whole story pivots from bad choices to good choices. And it's all in just the appearance and the presence of God. That should almost be the amen and we're done, that that concept is our life lived out. Any of you ever make a bad choice? Yeah. And that's the concept with us is that whether we've made bad choices and or the other people have made bad choices that have affected our life, we live with the pain and the suffering that comes with other people's choices as well. So I know that I've done some boneheaded things even this morning, and I'm not going to share those with you. My wife might listen to this message, so I don't want you to know all the things that I've done wrong. I want to look at you and know about yours, because then it makes me feel like I'm in good stead. Genesis does that again and again. It says you're not alone in this condition called humanity. That we constantly make mistakes. And in fact, we're impacted by the mistakes of others. And those are the first six verses. It's just another story that if you put three people together, you're likely to have a similar story like this. Unless Jesus himself comes and actually intervenes. And then it pivots and it becomes a completely different story. That's Genesis 16. In a nutshell, this whole thing played out. This presence of God question, though, is an interesting one. Years ago, when I was uh, uh, working as a journalist, I was doing a story on doubt. And um, one of the things as a Christian to really talk about people who doubt, I thought I've got to find people who will be honest about their doubts. And so I contacted the American Society or the Society of American Atheists, and uh, they had a, a a meeting that was a regular meeting of the atheists coming together. So I went to the meeting and in the process, they were asking this question that particular night in their discussion group is how did you determine right or wrong? If you have jettisoned God from your life, if you have removed the Judeo Christian ethic and said that God doesn't exist, then you don't use the Bible to guide you. Then at what point do you find anything that's determined to be right or wrong? How do you determine what's right or wrong for you? I thought this was a great question. And I thought, well, yeah, because I believe in God and I have scripture. So I feel very confident. And they started sharing how they make their decisions based on some type of moral line that they could come up with. But as they worked around the room, it was coming to me. And so we started to have a conversation about me as a Christian. How do I determine God or the, the moral values. And I said, God, it's, it's basically God. But then I had this question as I listened to them talk, I thought, but that's not actually true. So here's how it plays out in my life. And, and I think it probably does in yours as well. And we're going to make a simple illustration on this. You're driving down the freeway and say it's an early Saturday morning and there's hardly any cars on the freeway and you're driving along. And the question is, is how fast are you driving? Anyone? How fast are you driving? There's a 75. Thank you for your honesty, sir. You know, that type of thing. Most of us are hesitant about that because it's like, well, where are you going with this? Let me know what the, how the story plays out before I tell you what I really do. We, in California specifically, tend to drive what everybody else is driving. Like if the speed on the freeway is 80 miles an hour, we're doing 80 and maybe 81 or 82, right? So if the speed limit sign is, is, says 65 miles an hour, how fast does it go by you? 
75, right? It depends on what's happening. In fact, we even play this little bit of a game that if we look at the speed limit, we stop and say, well, if it says 70 miles an hour, then I could probably drive 72, 73, maybe even 74 without getting a ticket, right? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, like we're there. We play this game. Well, here's how it goes. You're driving down the freeway. Speed limit sign says 65 miles an hour. It goes by at 75, 80. And you look in your rearview mirror, and there on the on-ramp in your rearview mirror, you notice a high patrolman coming onto the freeway. And as he comes onto the freeway, now how fast are you driving? 65, right? In fact, you're trying to figure out, how do I slow down my car without stepping on the brakes? Because that red light will light up and tell him I've been speeding, right? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, this is us. Now watch what happens. You're watching him and your heart's beating a little bit like, oh, did he see me? Did he see me? And then you see him take the next off ramp. He goes onto the overpass and you're looking at this in your rearview mirror and you see him head back the other way and get on the freeway the other side. Now, how fast are you driving? Yeah, you see that you are just a wicked, corrupt people. You have no moral values. Your values are determined by audience. It is all in who happens to be present at the time. If the hybrid patrolman is with you, you're obeying the law. If he's not with you, what law? You do whatever you want to do and whatever suits your needs. Now, so do I. This was the question that just rattled around in my head. And this is the question that happens here in this moment. That for Sarai, for Abram, and for Hagar, they're doing whatever they think is right in this moment. And then now, suddenly, God shows up in the rearview mirror. Specifically in Hagar's. She's a long ways right now from Sarai and Abram. And God shows up in a rearview mirror and it changes her actions And as we're going to see, it changes her direction for quite a while. This is the moment of truth for all of us, is that for us to understand if we would acknowledge the presence of God in our lives, it should change our behavior. We should live differently. The person that goes on speeding at 85 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour, when they pass a 65 mile an hour sign, deserves to get a ticket, right? Well, so does the other. The reality is, is that that process for Hagar changes her life. So this is when we, we are going to focus on this pivot point. Bad choices made, good choices. The difference is God's presence in our life. God's presence in Hagar's life. Hagar, and, and you just have to recognize who she is. You've got to think about her for a second to realize that this woman is in a very unique spot. She's in a, in a, in a position that none of us would ever want to be in. She literally is an Egyptian slave. She's been captured put into slavery, likely when Abram is giving away Sarah as his sister, that when that whole thing happens, Pharaoh, when he finally figures it out, sends Abram away, but literally gives him animals and livestock and some slaves. So it's likely this is when they got Hagar. So she comes, she's already enslaved. Now she goes with some strange couple to wander through the wilderness. She has to work for this lady, Sarai. 
And at this moment, she's working with Sarai. So she knows what goes on in the house, in the tent. And in that process, she knows that whole story of Pharaoh. She was right there. She saw it. She heard about it. That whole thing happened. It's why she got there. She knows about that battle of the kings that when, when Abraham meets Melchizedek, that whole thing. She, she saw God at, with Pharaoh. She saw God with the battle. And now she has seen God with the covenant because that's a huge moment in Abraham's life. We even know about it thousands of years later. Hagar knew about it. She knows that God interacts with this couple, however strange they might be. But in this moment, Hagar, a slave girl, disenfranchised from anybody else. She is far away from her family, far away from her people, far away from anything. And in this moment, this God, her creator comes down and engages with her. That moment at this point in time is a huge moment in her life. A normal person, slave girl, and now she stops and says, look at verse 13. Because of all of this has happened, she then calls the name of the Lord. um, You are a God of seeing. This is the first name that a human being has given to God. All the rest of the time, God has given his own name. He has said, this is my name. This is the name that is used throughout Genesis up to this point. And in this case, this is the first time that a human being has said, I'm going to name you. And she says, you are the God of seeing because you have seen me. In fact, she does it several times. Um, truly, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. And then in verse 14, therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Bir Lahai Roy is the will of the living one who sees me. So even the well is named after this idea that God now sees her. In her mind, this is the biggest thing that has ever happened to her. I've been disenfranchised from everybody. And now the God of the universe has come down. She's seen me. He has seen me. He knows me. So this is happening in this part. But but then there's something different here. And I want you to catch it because it begins to change the narrative just slightly. It's what God said of himself, what Jesus said, and how he described this moment. This this theophany of Jesus appearing here, we're not going to go through and explain it in in its entirety, but pretty much the theologians agree that the, the angel of the Lord, when it's used in this kind of phrase, is Jesus himself. That any time in the Old Testament that this phrase is used, you get an opportunity where not only is the description there in in the text, but also God himself will describe actions that are attributed only to the eternal God. So in this case, this theologians pretty much agree that this is Jesus himself at this moment. But I want you to look at verse 11, because in verse 11, even though she says, you are a God who sees and you have seen me that this is not how Jesus describes himself. In verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction, not seen your affliction. He has listened to your affliction. This concept of what God is saying, in fact, even the name Ishmael is about, it's two words. It's Ishma is the first part, and El is the second part. El means God, and Shema means here. 
So even the name itself means a God who hears. Ishmael means a God who hears. And then God himself stops and says, not only are you going to call him Ishmael, but it's because the Lord has listened or heard not even your voice, but your affliction. We're going to talk about that a little more in a second. But this idea that she stops and says, you're a God who sees. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm a God who hears. And it's like, wait a minute. Can it be both? I mean, can he be a God who sees and hears? Yes, he can. But the inf- the 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 part that the, that each of them is, is in, um, I just lost my word, but the concept is that each of them that they want to emphasize for her, it's that you saw me, a woman at a well, disenfranchised from the rest of her culture. Does that sound familiar? That there was a time when Jesus shows up in Samaria and there's a woman at a well, disenfranchised, and Jesus starts to talk to her about her life. And she goes back to the rest of her village to tell them about Jesus. And she says, he, he told me everything that I ever did. He saw me. He knew me. And this is a similar point of where Hagar is. is she's at a well as well. And this, these two stories are remarkably similar. That Jesus shows up here at a well. And she stops and says, you know me. You have seen me. But again, Jesus says, he focuses on, I heard you. I heard your affliction. In fact, name your child Ishmael that God hears. Here's how this plays out. This concept of Shema. In fact, some of you may have recognized the word because Shema here is the, the, the number one prayer in the Jewish faith. That literally the Jews, they pray the Shema every morning and every evening. That are their major feast days, they pray the Shema. The Shema shows up for multiple situations in their culture and they pray the Shema. You might recognize the Shema from Deuteronomy. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema is written out. This is the prayer that Jews pray morning and evening over and over. Deuteronomy 6.4. Here. Shema, that's the word right there. And that's where the word comes from. Shema, that's the word in the Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And that's why they pray in the morning and the evening. When you lie down and when you rise, pray this prayer, Shema. So they do. But here's the catch. And here's why we're going to look at this word Shema for just a little bit more. This word Shema means here. But in the Old Testament, it also means obey. Not just sometimes, all the time. So the way it plays out is in the Old Testament, there is no other word for obey or obedience in the Old Testament. Except for Shema here. We clarify that, say that again, that in the Old Testament, you can't find the word obey with the exception of it just being Shema. It's the only time the word obey is used. So when all the Old Testament's uh, passages refer to, to obey is better than sacrifice, it literally means to Shema is better than to sacrifice. To hear is better than sacrifice. And you're like, wait a minute, I only have to hear, I don't have to obey? No, 
It's the concept in the Hebrew is they are one and the same. They are two sides of the same coin that if you hear, you haven't really heard unless you also obey or act on what you've heard. That concept that if I hear, I obey is a concept that describes the character and the nature of God himself. That he stops and says, if I have heard your afflictions... That because call your baby Ishmael, Shema'el, the God who hears, because I have listened, Shema'ad, I have heard your afflictions, means that God has not only heard, but is already acting on what he's heard. He is already involved in that scenario. That for God, there is no difference between hearing and doing. If you hear, you act. In fact, this principle shows up in the New Testament as well. We're going to look at a couple of quick passages that lay this out. The first one is out of Matthew, Matthew 7. And we're going to look at the verses of uh, 24 to um, 26-ish. Uh, Matthew seven twenty four. Everyone who then who hears these words, it's not Shema here because this is Greek. But this concept of hearing, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, acts, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but, he, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That concept is the concept of Shema, that the person who hears and acts, that's the concept. Again, look in, uh, in James And in James 1, um, James 1, verses 22 to 24, um, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't just hear it, do something about it, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the concept of Shema. It's that if I hear, it changes me and I do something about what I hear. One more is just simply the story of uh, Jesus tells about the two brothers that the father stops and says, hey, well, I need you to go do this job. I need you to go to work. And this is in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, 28, uh, Jesus is talking. He's telling the parable and he says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went into the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and he said the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. And then Jesus asked, which of the two did the will of his father? That Jesus asked, which one really shamad? This question of Shema is which one heard the, the, the first one? Everybody knows it's the first one because he actually did something. And because of that, that principle is played out. And nobody has a hard time with that. We get that. That's the concept of Shema. The beauty of this concept is that God stops and says, I have heard your affliction. And because I heard it, I am already active in it. I am already working on it. I am already aware of it. I am already involved in your life because I simply heard. That's the character of God. It's a beautiful thing that when we look at this, we recognize that God stops and says, I have heard your affliction. Now, this moment, this, this idea of, of what he's heard, 
we have to stop and realize that, that we may be, many of us today, may be at a point where we're hurting, where we're suffering, where we're facing loss, where we're facing some type of grief in our life, where we're confused about what's going on. And what I love about this passage is it never says that Hagar actually prayed. Not in this one. It doesn't say that she prayed, that she cried out to God. It simply is God showing up in her life because he had listened to, not her prayers, to her affliction. Because of her suffering, because of what she was going through, everything that was bad that was happening to her, God heard and he shema, he heard and he was already acting. In fact, at this point, we stop and we see that not only is he shown up here, but he gives a promise to her here. He is guiding her here. He is speaking into her life here. God is involved in her life by a a step of obedience. And this is next what she has to deal with is the choice of what happens. But because God's presence shows up at this moment, it changes Hagar. Bad choices, Sarai, bad choices, Abram, bad choices, Hagar. She heads off into the wilderness. She's going her way. And then God comes and finds her. Now, a moment about where she's headed. She is Egyptian. We've already established that passage says that, that Hagar is an Egyptian slave. And if you look at the map, there are descriptions of the locations where she was. So that this is something God wants us to know where she was and what she was doing. She had left the the land of Israel and she was going sort of southwest. And she is heading out into the desert. She is heading towards Egypt. She is going back home. But the thing about the desert is that it's hard to get across. You might have seen this in movies. Deserts can be a, a, a long stretch of nothing. And so there are two main highways. Even at this point, there is the Via Marius, which is the way of the sea that goes along the coast route. So along the coast of Israel, right along the top of the, the Sinai Peninsula and right into the Nile um, the Nile River Valley and right into to Egypt. So that's the main travel route. That's the main trade route. There's another one known as the King's Highway. And that one comes straight south and goes right to the, the tip of where the Gulf, the Persian Gulf comes up. And then it crosses straight across to the Suez. And that's known as the King's Highway. To this day, even still, the first one, the top one, the Via Marius is Highway 40. And the other one, the King's Highway is Highway 50. There are two highways right there. After thousands and thousands of years, there are still roads that way. She didn't take either of those roads. She is not on the quick, easy way to get there. And I don't think we need to wonder why so much because you really look at it and you stop and say, she's a runaway slave. She is literally, her, her mistress has treated her badly. So she's fleeing, she's running away. She takes a route through the middle and where she has, where she is, where you pinpoint her location when this event happens is she is at the last well before she heads out into the desert, likely to die. She is running from everything. She doesn't want to go on the other routes because at that point she gets captured as a, as a runaway slave. They're likely to kill her, rape her, leave her for dead. Whatever they do, it's not going to go well if they find her. So she takes the middle route, which is even worse. That stops and says, you're likely to never see another human being again. You may just die out there. That's the path she's on when this God who hears her affliction shows up and catches her just before she steps off into a decision that would destroy her. 
This is God reaching out to mankind in the middle of their bad choices, but it changes Hagar. So this is what I want you to see next is that God's presence in her life, his Shema, his, his hearing her causes him to act. And then look what happens next. Um, he gives her two commands in verse nine and, uh, in verse nine, it says the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Oh, that's hard. You mean that crazy lady that just stuck me with her old husband, that lady, I'm supposed to, the one that treated me so badly that I ran away, the one that I'm carrying a baby of her husband and they just want to take away that baby. That one, that's the one you want me to go to. That's hard. But God stops and says, I need you to return and submit. And then the second one shows up in verse 11 when he, he says, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So God gives two commands. Go back to your mistress and name your baby Ishmael. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, and Hagar bore Abram a son. That means she's gone back. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. She did it. She went back, submitted to her mistress, gave birth and told Abram, the baby needs to be named Ishmael. Likely told this whole story to Abram. And Abram hears it and they name the baby Ishmael. What I want you to understand in this is God's presence comes in. This is a God whose character is, I hear and I obey. I hear and I act. My character as God is that I can only do that. That if I hear of affliction, I will get involved in that. And that in this moment, what happens next, because of his presence in Hagar's life, Hagar hears God's voice, hears the commands, and she acts. She shema. She hears, not just hears, but obeys and acts. That concept is the clearest thing of this entire passage. Everybody previous, first six verses, disobey bad choices all the way along. God's presence comes in. He brings in his character of Shema that I hear and I act. And then Hagar, because this is Christ, Hagar starts to become Christ-like in that moment. That's so cool. That in the presence of God, that we become more like God. That if we focus on who he is, what his character traits are, and the God that he is, that we take on those same traits, or we should desire to by all means. It's why we take the time to go through Genesis, because it reveals the nature and the character of God. And our desire to be more and more like Christ should be what guides our life along the way because of his presence in us. That's what happens. She does the same thing. The hardness, the difficulty, that if we think um, God is calling us to do something hard, we often stop and say, well, the easiest thing to do is to say no to God, right? God's asking me to do something difficult. I don't feel like doing it. That's going to be hard. So I'm going to say no to God. I want you to get this clear picture. She is on the edge of disaster when God comes and says, you need to hear me. What she's about to choose will destroy her. She is on the edge of that desert and God stops and says, don't do that. That will destroy you. I have a better way for you. When God calls us to obedience, it may be hard. It may be difficult, but it is always better. Let me say that again. When God calls us to do something, it may be hard. It may be difficult, but it is always better. 
hearing the, the call of God and being obedient to what God calls us to do is the thing that will have the deepest impact in our life for good. She's a runaway slave. She's been disenfranchised by everybody. And then in this moment, she hears the voice of God and she acts. There's three things that I just simply want to wrap up with. Three clear points and uh, then we're done. Number one, don't doubt God's promises. This is, this is that very thing that what happens with Sarai and Abram is they've had the promises. Just last Sunday, the, the chapter is about the covenant of God, his promise of the, peop- of the, the people that are going to come out of Abraham's loins. That is his generations that will follow him. That promise has just happened. We don't know the exact amount of years that have happened between that covenant and this. But what we have at this moment in time is a promise from God and Sarai and Abram, both doubting. And what that means is, is they're in a moment where they've heard God's promise and they are trying to solve the problem for God. In other words, we're still not pregnant. God hasn't been able to do it. I know he made the promise, but he's not able to do it. Why don't we do it? Let us get involved. And so too often we do that same thing. We get involved to try to solve God's problem as if God's not capable Hagar, after recognizing the presence of God, she does just the opposite. She brings all of her problems to God and surrenders him to God. It's a really clear picture for us not to stop and solve God's problems, the things that are facing God. The thing is, is we should take the things that are facing us and surrender them up to God. That's number one. Don't doubt God's promises. And I love that um, the uh, quote from uh, Corey Ten Boom when she stops and says, um, never doubt in the dark what God has promised in the light. Never doubt in the dark what God has promised in the light. We'll hear from God. It'll be a good day. He'll give us the truth and principle. And then when things start getting hard and difficult, we then begin to doubt. Don't doubt God's promises. Number two, if you're, if you're suffering, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, and I mean you, us today, if you're going through something difficult, if you're grieving, if you're facing loss, whatever that might be in your life that's tearing you up, know that God hears. Shema. This principle should be so encouraging to us that not only is he aware, but it's not just, oh, I know about it. The Shema word that God himself uses says, I'm involved in it. I don't just know about it. I'm acting in it. I am there in the middle of it. Shema. That, the beauty of that term that Christ uses here, that if, uh, if you're struggling, suffering, grieving, God hears Shema, your affliction. This is who he is. This is his character. Last one. I want you to follow the pattern again. God, Shema. He hears, he acts. Because of that, Hagar, Shema. She hears and acts. And the final conclusion is, and you, you see this question just sits right in front of us. And so often it's nice just to close in prayer, (laughs) but there's that question. So if God speaks to you, do you hear? According to, to the scripture, it says, if you hear, it means you also obey, you act, you shema. God hears, or God Shema, Hagar Shema, and now the question is for us. 
So don't doubt God's promises. If you're struggling, suffering, grieving, God hears your affliction. He knows and he's active in it. And then the question for you is, will you Shema? Hagar ends up surrendering on each of these points. She surrenders her doubts and believes in God. She surrenders her afflictions and her problems to God. And she surrenders her will and obeys God. Just like Jesus himself did in the garden. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He shamas. That's the principle played out. I want to close with uh, just simply some names of people. I wanted to close with a cool story that would get you all in tears and have you leaving emotionally. Like, oh, that was such a great story. And I thought, no, no, I need to just give you the principle and the truth. But I was reading stories about people of faith, that people who did just this, that when they heard from God, they literally sacrificed and did something great. So I just wrote down their names. And uh, you will know some of their names. You may not know all of their names. But these were some of the stories that I reviewed. And the list is much, much longer. But many of you maybe have heard of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Um, they were the two that went to the Alka Indian or two of five that went to the Alka Indians that as they were reaching out as missionaries to these Indians, the Indians ended up killing all five of them. Uh, The book, Through the Gates of Splendor, or the movie, that's their story. They were individuals who did just this. They heard from God. They shamad, they went and acted. Eric Liddell, Chariots of Fire, the Olympic runner who stopped and got his uh, gold medal race was slated for Sunday. And God had put it on his heart to obey the Sabbath. And so he said, I can't run on Sunday. Great movie, great book. Louis Zamperini, if you've read the book Unbroken or saw the movie, Louis Zamperini had the same moment where he had to stop and surrender to God. Sergeant Alvin York, one of the most decorated or the most decorated soldier the United States has ever had in World War I, was a man who was known for his faith because he had done just this. We can't tell all these stories of William Wilberforce, George Mueller, Billy Sunday, Dwight Moody, Billy Graham, C.S. Lewis, even Chuck Norris. It's true. Chuck Norris is a Christian, and if you read his testimony, he comes to a point where he had to give up. He had to surrender. Chuck Norris never surrenders. (laughs) Chuck Norris will tell you he surrendered to God. Not my will, but God, yours. That's this list. Noah did that. Abraham, Abraham did it. David did it. Daniel did it. Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's true. They all came to a point where they had to stop and say, my faith in God requires me that if he speaks to me, I must shema. I must surrender and be all his. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Hagar. I thank you for this woman who endured just incredible shame throughout most of her life, who had so many terrible things happen to her. And yet, Lord, you stepped in And you met her. You heard her afflictions. Lord, even that principle for us to stop and see who you are as a God who knows whenever I'm hurting. And not just knows, but is active and involved in it. Lord, thank you for this truth played out in this story. Thank you for showing up that day. And thank you for showing up for us. Thank you for showing up on the cross. We love you, Lord. And we love your grace. We love your, your, your help for our time in need. 
But Lord, even as we pray, we also pray for your clear word of commands that we might obey, that we might shema, that we might be just like you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.